the honeycombs from 1964 i can't stop and it reflects all the great virtues of joe meek that i've been talking about but the podcast is really more about the actual um this podcast is about the actual content i can't stop and it relates to grace as being um um, engendering a response in the recipient of grace that makes it impossible to Stop the response. In other words, the response is automatic and not willed or rationally undertaken. The cast is number 350, so it's important to me. This is the 350th episode of PZ's podcast for Mockingbird. So it has a kind of... um, uh, it marks a, a, a kind of an important point, 350, and... Uh, the cast is also dedicated to Tully and Tavidian, who at a conference recently, the Fallen and Free Conference at Tullian's Church, the Sanctuary in Jupiter, Florida, um, underlined a point that we find is very true because he and I were reflecting on <clears throat> a number of talks we hear in various places, especially among uh, proponents of the grace theology, which is simply pure Christian gospel. But... Um, a uh, kind of resolution to these talks that sort of goes like this. It tells what God has done in Christ, and it's one-way love, and it's total mercy, and it's complete forgiveness, and it's all been achieved, and it's the one full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice, satisfaction, and oblation for the sins of the whole world, to quote Thomas Cranmer and the great communion prayer from the early Reformation prayer book. But It then goes sort of like this. It says, now you have to just relax into it. You have to to take this idea. You have to realize that this is the way it is, that God sees you this way. You have to assimilate this. You've got to hear it and believe it and hold on to it and sort of be told it many, many times because you'll forget it. But you have to just hear this and you have to kind of settle back into it like in an armchair. And it makes sense, but... As Tullian uh, very insightfully um, said to me, it feels like pressure still. In other words, um, I would say, well, he would say, it feels like still something you have to do. You have to get acquainted with this. You have to immerse yourself in it. You have to bathe yourself in the one-way love. But that... um, that still feels like pressure because, as he, he would have put it, well, what if you can't? Or, I mean, you hear it, you believe it, you want to believe it, it saved your life, but it, what does it really mean to, to sort of um, uh, get it? Um, isn't that still something of a mental exercise? And I believe Tullian is correct on that. My way of saying it is it becomes an abstraction. Even the most powerful Lutheran performative sermons... <coughs> uh, that the, you, you hear the word and the word creates the mental... Um, the mental um, 
box inside you in which you now know this forever. The Word creates something above and beyond. That has always felt to me, and I heard these sermons often in Tübingen, which is a very properly, uh, historically, um, uh, really um, apostolic uh, place where this gospel has been preached for hundreds of years. It always came across to me as still a mental effort or a kind of an exercise or at least an abstraction. And I would uh, want to say that the response to grace is not, in fact, something that you have to sort of live into. The response to grace, if it really is grace, and it, it often is, people receive grace and love and forgiveness. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He didn't came to he didn't he he came to save the lost sheep and not the many who were righteous or were not at the moment of going through a crisis. Though every sheep does go through a crisis, because every human being goes through one or two in their lives, maybe three or four. Someone was writing me the other day, very touching. Um, email about that this is a very difficult period in his life, and I felt for him so when he said it, because it's true. He spoke from the heart. Now, the Luther understood from the New Testament and from the experience of his own self, let alone the disciples and the apostles and the Mary Magdalene's and the Zacchaeus's and the St. Matthew's and the legions of this world, that the response to forgiveness and one-way love is automatic, it's not something that has to be sort of felt or, uh, I mean, I mean, it, actually, it just happens. It's, it's when you observe how people react when they're really loved in their, in what we call today their mess or their sin or their <clears throat> profound lostness and paralysis, you don't have to, they don't have to live into anything. It happens automatically. This is automatisch. I'm going to quote a, um, a, uh, a passage from Carl Hull's uh, epic book, The Reconstruction of Morality, where he says on page 35, uh, discussing uh, Luther's um, Luther's uh, teaching in the Psalms from the 1513, early 1513 to 1515 lectures on the Psalms, <clears throat> Hull writes about Luther, only when one's thoughts and aspirations have become so identified with the commandment that its requirements seem to spring automatically from the inner self is an action really free and in accord with God's will. Let me repeat that. Only when one's thoughts and apparitions have become so identified with the commandment that its requirements seem to spring automatically from the inner self is an action really free. Now, that's just unbelievably true. I don't need to, to um, certainly it rules out the third use of the law. I don't need to sort of still give you various uh, boundaries in which your actions are to take place after you've been saved. <clears throat> Luther understood that, and I've completely agree with that. That's a, something we, we, we've, it's not true. And the third use of the law quickly becomes the second use of the law. I'm, uh, I'm saying that the response to love is automatic. Now, the reason I can say this is um, because I want to, I always like to get the metaphor from the phosphorus moments of romantic love. To me, um, in my experience of rock music, you thought I was going to say my experience of life, in my experience of popular music, going right back to the Civil War, let alone before, drink to me only with mine eyes, thine eyes, the experience of popular art is that popular artists understand that most people receive their greatest um, experiences of one-way love in romantic love. It's when someone you like actually loves you back. You know, when, when someone you love actually loves you, um, you find out that someone's altruistic, powerful, motivated, 
uh, affection for you personally, persönlich, not somebody else or some group or some idea of you, but actually you, and that person is willing to give their all for your sake, that um, automatically uh, turns uh, a response. Um, you look, at, you look at your old love letter sometime. Most people have them. There's a great scene in uh, in uh, She and Alan, which is a late novel of Ryder Haggard, when they, uh, the Alan Quatermain and his group come across the uh, poor of uh, the the sort of kind of chest uh, underneath a house where a Dutch settler who's been disillusioned and become an alcoholic and has uh, has a a Zulu wife and is completely ensconced in a world that is turned rather sour because of his alcoholism, to say the least, and uh, he dies. And they go down into this kind of hidden chamber where he kept all his alcohol and certain other things that he that were illegal, and they find uh, way, way, way in the back of this, uh, they have to take a torch in to find this semi-cave, this dugout, they find a little batch of letters. They find a small batch of about 20 letters from his much, much earlier life, probably from when he was back in Holland or in South Africa, elsewhere. And they find these letters and their love letters. And this man's tragedy is suddenly illuminated as a case of... Um, of lost love, and it's just uh, Haggard typically just kind of says it and goes on because it, he observes what is the truth. And when you look at your love letters, and you have them, I've got many from Mary, um, and real love, you, you didn't have to uh, suddenly um, live into her uh, concern for you. You immediately wanted to do something back. It just came like. Bang! Instantly, your desire to serve the other, to watch out for the other, to cover for the other, to to find ways you, um, you you if you really love and you're not selfish and self-involved, at Christmas time you want to find the present that that the person is going to to want to delight the person. You're not going to want something that you think that you would like to give her. I made that mistake one Christmas of very, in a very funny but not so funny at the time way, which I gave Mary something that I, I thought she should like, but I never had, had not properly factored in what would she like. And in other words, it was a failure of love. But love that is really felt never fails. It's automatisch. It automatically. So if, if it happens with you and a girl or you and a guy, you or your husband, you or your fiance, you and your child for that matter, um, but most often it happens in romantic love in a peer kind of way. <clears throat> you, no one has to tell you to love back. No one has to tell you what to do or how to feel or what. It's automatic. It happens. In, now, I want to, um, I was very touched that Tullian in a um, panel that we were doing uh, down at the Fallen Free Conference quoted a passage that I had quoted for him years and years ago from um, a, uh, a novel called The Autobiography of Mark Rutherford by uh, Mark Rutherford, but Mark Rutherford's real name was William Hale White. And uh, it's a brilliant passage about the difference between abstract sin and real sin and abstract forgiveness and real forgiveness. But in another <coughs> book, of uh, White's, uh, my favorite one of his, uh, William Hale White, uh, called Catherine Furs, F as in Frank, U-R-Z-E, he has another picture of an automatic response. And I want to, um, I want to uh, read uh, a little bit of it. Um, there's a terrible fellow in the novel named Orchid Jim. A re this is about a, some very middle, uh, lower to middle sort of small business people in a tiny little village in uh, Leicestershire. And um, 
A, uh, a man named Orchid Jim, a working man, has done a terrible, terrible act of deceit and gotten a fellow named Mr. Catchpole into trouble. Such trouble that Mr. Catchpole has lost his job and his girl because of the lie that was created by Orchid Jim. And at a certain point, um, they find themselves at the very end of the story um, crossing a, a flooding river, a flooding a large stream to go away, and they find themselves in the same boat. And um, Orchid Jim almost dies, and he's dragged ashore in the wreck of this boat that they're using to cross the river. He's dragged ashore by Tom Catchpole. In other words, he, the villain of the piece, is his life is saved by... Um, by uh, the very man whom he had abused. And uh, this is how it goes. Um, In an instant, Jim was dragged ashore and was in safety, says the boatman. That's a narrow squeak for you, Mr. Jim. If it hadn't been for Mr. Catchpole, you'd have been in another world by this time. Jim was perfectly sensible, but his eyes were fixed on Tom, that's Mr. Catchpole, with a strange, steady stare. He did not stir, but at last without a word, he turned round and slowly walked away. Now, Jim goes back home and uh, gathers uh, the people in his, uh, in his, in the little business where Jim had betrayed Mr. Catchpole, and that same night gathers all of them together, and he says to them all quickly, I've got something to say. You see before you the biggest liar as ever was, and one as deserves to go to hell if any one man ever did. Everything I said about Mr. Catchpole was trumped up. None of it is word, and and I'm, I'm to be locked up, and I want to be locked up, and I was tempted by the devil, but the Lord has had mercy on me and has saved my body and soul this day. Mind you, he's been saved by the very man whose life he destroyed. I can speak no more, and I'll be transported. And then... Uh, he leaves because they don't press charges. They're merciful. They both, and this is it. He rose, this is Orchid Jim, the saved, terrible man, but he's been saved. His life has been saved by the man whom he intentionally destroyed. And uh, Rutherford writes this on page 357. Orchid Jim rose and walked out, left Eastthorpe that night, and nothing more was heard of him for years. Then there came news from an Eastthorpe man who had gone to America that Jim was at work at Pittsburgh, that he was also a preacher of God's word, and that by God's grace he had brought hundreds to a knowledge of their Savior. And then um, uh, William Hale White, the author, invokes um, invokes uh, John Bunyan, and he concludes the chapter by saying, I can assure you, my friends, writes the author, my incredulous literary friends, that years ago it was not uncommon for men and women suddenly to awake to the fact that they had been sinners and to determine that henceforth they would keep God's commandments by the help of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. What is more extraordinary is that they did keep God's commandments for the rest of their lives. Now, that's very powerful. Tullian used that quote uh, on page 357-358 because it says that when you're saved, even in this case, it was, a, it was an instance in life of what God had done in Christ for 
Orca Jim, which he'd heard about, presumably, in some court of a church growing up. He was converted, and no one had to tell him what to do. He left. He First, he repented of what he had done and apologized in public to the people he had hurt, and specifically to the man whom he had most hurt, who had saved his life. And then he left for America, started a whole new life, and he ended up... Um, becoming an evangelist and saving the souls of many. This is supposed to occur around 1850. Now, isn't that amazing? I mean, isn't that extraordinary? And um, what I was hearing from our time together at Fallen Free is that the response to one-way love is not something that has to be sort of tacked on as a kind of intellectual grasp or some kind of semi-emotional latching on to, by conscious will or even by unconscious will, some kind of a new state of mind that you're in, you know. Um, it's not about that. It's, uh, it happens automatically. And you know this from your life with, with the woman or the man whom you have loved. You know this, that your desire to please them, your desire to do what they want you to do, the desire to more, I would say more likely, the desire to love in a way that they will receive is instinctive. And it comes, it's an automatic, non-rational, but completely... Uh, well, again, the word is, um, it's, it's almost like a compulsion, but that's not quite the word. It happens by itself. It's spontaneous. It's extemporary. Uh, in that sense, it's situational. It's only situational because it the form of love that depends on the person. And uh, it happens without any kind of design. So if you can just remember how you have reacted when someone's really loved you for your own on your own terms or for your own sake and how you felt and what you did in response, you'll understand how the grace of God really works. And we don't have to give this long thing about, you know... Um, uh, kind of this this ad, 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 added thing to sermons about sort of what Lutherans say. They, they, we don't bring anything to our salvation, but there's some, still some kind of, there's something that has to happen that apparently is has to do with acceptance. And uh, But you don't have to do that. And, and Tullian said he felt, even when he heard that, he felt it as some kind of pressure. So I prevent, uh, present that to you as a little uh, statement of what the... Um, of what the uh, gospel really creates. It is absolutely and completely spontaneous, extemporary, and automatic, the response of love. You know this within yourself, and that's why I don't need to tell you anything else. It's automatic, and it will come in the way that God situationally creates the context for it to happen. But my Christmas presents, I hope, are different, let alone one's Valentine's Day presents. And I do dedicate this 350th cast to Tullian Tavidian, my friend over many, many years. God bless you all. Oh, and here's uh, a speeded-up vocal by Joe uh, Meek of The Honeycombs again, but I'm giving you a treat. I'm giving you the German-language version of their one and great hit, Have I the Right? This is the German-language version from 1964 of Hab ich das Recht. Love you. Das Recht zu denken, du willst mir alles schenken, das wird das Schönste für uns sein. Oh, ich will dein Leben lenken und will dich. 
das Recht zu fragen, darf ich es endlich wagen? Sag mir, wann wirst du endlich mein? Dann 